13. We're going to continue looking at Romans 13 today. After that, we will switch gears, but we're continuing to look at the whole concept of um, stewardship of government, and that's what we want to do today. If you have not been here, we have looked at the concept of our government as a stewardship. Remember, a stewardship is the right, good, and uh, proper use of everything God has given us. We have the privilege in the United States of having a government that is really us, and others represent us. Today, we're going to look at one of the things that Every sermon so far, somebody, or actually multiple people, I walked up and said, but what about, and I knew before they finished the sentence what it was going to be. Because in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, it says that all people are to be subject to their government. That is something that is pretty much an ironclad kind of thing. And it is a command by God that we are to do that. But what if, are there exceptions? For example, let's just say that our government said from now on, churches are not allowed to have baptismal services. We're having one tonight. By the way, I sure hope you show up. Of all the services we do, baptisms are right up on the top of my list. Right along with uh, our evening communion service and our Thanksgiving and praise service. It's right up there. But what what if they said, you know what? Baptisms are an offense to our nation, and you're not allowed to perform baptisms. Would we still do baptisms? What about, what about if they said, you know what, it really flies in the face. You're talking about violence and hatred. You can't do communion because communion says we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. You can't do that. That's uh, politically incorrect. You've got to stop doing that. Oh, what if they said you can't come to church or you can't have a Bible study in your home? Or you cannot talk to your neighbor or you can't carry a Bible in the street? You said, well, that'll never happen. Chris Edder stands up here on a monthly basis and tells us that in many places that already happens. And if you haven't noticed, uh, the inroads are coming in for us. The point is, and here's this, is there ever a place that civil disobedience is biblical. In fact is, I will get it one step further. Is there a place where civil disobedience is almost mandated for a Christian? I would propose to you that I think I can make an argument for that. I can make an argument that there is a place where we would have to stand up and say, we cannot agree and we have to In the face of the government and all the power of the government say, you know what? I have to take a stand and I will pay the price for it. That's my conclusion. Because remember, everything you do in life has consequences. Everything. And if you choose to go against the government, there are consequences. I'll tell you what, the Bible is full of them. You may not think about it. You may want to think about it as I'm going through here, because in the end, I'm going to go down a litany of places in the Bible and people of the Bible who went directly against the government. 
And you're going to see there are various results from that. But God does not commend them, condemn them, but rather commends them for what they did. So, let's look at that. As I already mentioned, the first verse says that we are to be subject to governing authorities. That is the overall principle. It does not change. But there are indeed exemptions to that. But this morning, we're going to pick up, we've already looked at the first four verses. We're going to pick up at verse 5 and look at what it says. It says there, Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. It says here, We don't become good citizens, law-abiding people, because if I don't obey the law, I'm going to get fined or put in jail or some other consequence is going to come my way. I understand that sometimes we do that. We just say, you know what, I don't want to get caught. I don't want to get a fine. I don't want to... We do that. We don't really like it. We don't understand it, but we obey just because we don't want to get caught, right? Isn't that why you keep the speed limit sometimes? On the other hand, it says that's the lowest... That's the lowest. Because why we should actually obey is because of our conscience. Our conscience, according to Romans chapter 2, is that facility that God has given us in our thinking that alternately accuses us or defends us in what we do. Our conscience is our moral compass, spiritual compass, that helps us to make right decisions. We have to make choices on the basis of what our conscience dictates to us. And our conscience should always be tempered and clarified by the truths of the Word of God. So this morning, we're going to look at some of those. Because if there is a place for civil disobedience, it means our conscience has to come into play. Because I know what the Scripture says. I also know what it says on the other side. It says both of them. And it says here that in verse 6, Because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Now, I don't like that. Is there anyone here that, that rejoices when they pay their taxes? Oh, I'm not putting my hand up because I don't. I know my wife doesn't. You know what? Nobody likes it. But here's what it does say. It says that because our rulers... Ours are servants of God. Now, this is not the normal word for servant. We looked at that one last week. That means a deacon or one who serves tables, meets the temporal needs of people. That is used earlier in this passage. That's not this one. This word for minister or servant has to do with somebody that's a public servant. Someone who works on the behalf of someone else. It's a different word, different concept. In fact, is the Apostle Paul actually used it of himself also. He said, I am a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. That's the word, minister. And then he goes on to use it one more time. Ministering as a priest. A priest is one in the Old Testament that brought people into God's presence. He said, I'm a minister. I'm working on behalf of the public. That's what the Apostle Paul did. He was also a servant in the other way, too, where he was simply ministering to the temporal needs of people. He says, our servants, our rulers 
are for our behalf. And so we pay taxes. It's interesting. The root of the word taxes means to bear a load. (laughs) Boy, I, I looked at that and I'm like, did I misread that? But that's what it feels like, right? It is something that feels like a burden, something you got to carry. And that's exactly what it means. It's an obligation. It's an assessment on our person or our property. If you have a job, you pay because you have income. If you own property, you pay real estate tax. I mean, that's what the word is about. Now, we're going to see it again, but he says the reason you pay taxes is because the same reason that you pay me a salary. Because hopefully when you leave here, you can say, Pastor Paul helped me to understand the word of God, challenged me, led me in worship or whatever else it is. Okay, it's the same concept. They are God's representatives on our behalf, and we pay taxes so that they can make a living and not starve to death. Uh, Sorry, some of you, I just heard it in your brain. You go, I wish some of them did start. I'm just joking. You didn't even think that was funny. Okay, well, then I'm moving on. Okay, verse 7. Rendered to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. That brings us to the end of this context, talking about government. But notice what it says first. It says, tax to whom tax. I am to give to them what my obligation is. Same word is used about husbands and wives in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says, we have a responsibility, an obligation to our spouse. Same word. We have an obligation to our government. And that is to pay our taxes. As I already mentioned what the definition of the word tax is. But Jesus used that word earlier in the Gospels. And so we kind of know what it's talking about. Uh, They came to him and uh, they were trying to trick him. They were trying to say, well, if you pay your taxes, then you're being not really worshiping God and really not sold out to God. So they said... Is it lawful for us to pay our taxes? He said, give me a coin. So they gave him a coin, a denarius. And he said, whose inscription is on this? And their answer was, it's Caesar's. His answer was this. He said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He said, there's not a contradiction here. If you pay your taxes, you're not being disobedient or less than Christian, or less than holy, or less than righteous. He's saying, there's two different spheres of authority. There is the government, and they are exactly what they are. And then, they're serving God. We do both. That's all he's telling them. He said, this coin, got Caesar's picture on it. You need to give it back to Caesar in your taxes. On the other hand, there are spiritual things that the government shouldn't touch. In our country, we say we have freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of conscience and, and freedom of assembly and things like that. You know what? They're things that the government is not supposed to touch. There's a separation. Taxes is one of them. Then it goes on to say custom to whom custom. You go, well, that's a tax, right? But it's a different word. And it's used entirely different. In fact is, Jesus also 
uh, used that one in Matthew chapter 17, verses 25 and 26. Uh, they came in the house and Jesus spoke to him uh, first saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect their customs or their poll tax? From the sons or from strangers? And Peter answers back and he says, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. This was what we would call an import tax or something along that line. It is something that is charged on others who want to do business with us. That's the difference. One is for the citizens. One is for those that aren't citizens. And both of them are valid things that the government does. And then it goes on to say, fear to whom fear? We are to respect. And you go, I can't respect my government official because they're corrupt or they're immoral or whatever else. I totally understand that. But here's what I do know. There is also positional respect. They have a position. There are lots of people in government I have no personal respect for. On the other hand, they are in a position and God, according to this passage, has put them there. So I have to live in that way. And then it goes on to say, and honor to whom honor. I give the proper weight to who that person is, what their responsibility is. When I do that, it changes me. I don't know about you, but I'm going to surmise. You like to gripe and complain and groan and moan just about as much as I do at times, right? Yeah, you can put your hand up on that. No, don't, don't do that. The point is, God says, you know what? I put some people in position and you need to give proper weight. That's what the word honor means. Proper weight to who their position and where they are. Not always easy. That's why he has to remind us of these things. Not easily to respect them or to honor them. Or it's not easy to pay taxes because we don't like it. But here's what I do know. If the government comes along and directly tells us to do something that is contrary to what God says, we have to make a choice, a conscious choice. Does God take precedence above government? The answer is absolutely. He's the one that gave government. So he, by very virtue of that, he gave government and put it into practice. He is above government. Here's what I'm also going to tell you. I know a lot of people, whether they're Christians or not, they are walking around looking for a fight. That is absolutely not a Christian virtue. Looking for a fight, looking for a quarrel is not who we are to be. We are to be peacemakers whenever possible. But is there a time when it's okay to say enough is enough, I Stop here, I stand here, and I won't be moved. The answer is absolutely. Is there a specific passage? Mm -hmm. We ought to obey God rather than men. I'll get back to that again in the end. Because that's the classic passage that's going to define what I'm going to say next. I do not believe this is a contradiction. still says God gave government, they're his ministers, and we are to be subject to them. But are, those are there those times when there are exceptions? The answer is absolutely yes. Let's go back and we're going to do a whirlwind tour of rebels. Of people who were civilly disobedient. 
By the way, when you're civilly disobedient, you're not upping the game and trying to make it worse than it is. We're going to start out with a group of women. We call them the Hebrew midwives. Exodus chapter 1. Pharaoh looked around and he said, these Hebrew people, there's too many of them and they're too strong and we're scared of them. So what they did, the government said to the midwives, if a baby boy Hebrew is born, you're to kill him. And they said, absolutely not. See, because life and the sanctity of life is higher than that. That is a direct disobedience to God has the right to give life and take it away. Midwives don't have that. And so what happened? What is the end result? They flat out lied. They said, the Hebrew women are tougher than the Egyptians. And you know what? They give birth before we get there. So what are we supposed to do about it? They lied through their teeth. And you go, I bet God really slammed them for lying. Uh Uh-uh. You know what it says? And this is interesting. Because it says, verse 20 of Exodus chapter 1, it says, So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. I don't know if it was more than before or not. All I know is that they were civilly disobedient. They went 100% against what they were told to do by the government. Seems like the Bible started out with women. The next one, she doesn't have a very good reputation. New versions and people trying to explain this away say, she was an innkeeper. I have no doubt that she served food and she probably had an inn. But this was a full service inn. She was a prostitute. There's no way to get around it. The Old Testament says that and the New Testament says. Rahab the harlot. The spies came to Jericho. She's there. She welcomes them into her establishment. I'm not sure they took care of the, uh, used the full facilities. But they were there. And she found out that they were going to get them. So what does she do? She gives them passage out. She hides them and then gets them out of town. The officials come and they say, hey, have these men come? And she goes, she lied through her teeth again. Yeah, they were here and uh, I didn't know who they were and uh, I don't know where they went. Uh, So, you know, I'm, I'm innocent. No, she lied, lied, lied. You know what? You go, well, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure God was really going to be stern with her. I'm not saying it was because she lied. She did what is right. She saved her own life and the life of her family. The Hebrew midwives, the end result of civil disobedience, God blessed them. He was good to them. In her case, she and her family are the only ones that survived because she did what is right. She did what was godly. How do I know that? Because I can read in the New Testament too. She is seen in James chapter 2 as an example of our faith by itself is not good enough. She is an example of faith carried out in works. She is seen as a hero of someone who put their faith into action. She is also seen in the hall of faith as one who is an example of faith. It says there, by faith, Rachel, the the harlot, did not perish with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies in peace. She did what was a higher calling than the law said. Now we get to a 
son of the king. His name's Jonathan. His dad's name was Saul. Saul, being a rash guy that he was, made a decree. They were in battle. And he said, anyone who eats until the battle is over and we have won is going to die. Jonathan didn't get the message. Remember, this is the decree from the king. And he meant it. I know that because I read the rest of the story. He said, anybody that does that, anybody that eats before the battle is over and we've won is going to be killed. Jonathan finds honey. He takes some of the honey. He eats it. His spirit is revived. He's ready to go. And after it's over, they find out that somebody ate. Jonathan said, I don't, I mean, uh, Saul said, I don't care who it is. If it's me or my son, I don't care. So they, they checked it out. They went through the process and it came down to, it was between Saul and Jonathan, and then it came down to Jonathan. He said, Jonathan's got to die. So if you don't think he meant it, he meant it. He was willing to kill his own son because his command had been violated. Now this one's interesting. Because you know why Jonathan didn't die that day? Because the people stood up and said, Saul, you're not going to do it. His military men said, Saul, this is not going to happen on the day of victory. This is not going to happen. The people stood up and said, Mr. King, thou shalt not do this, and we're not going to let you get away with it. Because it was a rash. But it was a decree by the government. In this case, the people overruled the king, and everybody's life was saved that day. Then there was Obadiah. By the way, you're not going to find his name at the title of a book in your Bible. This is a different Obadiah. He was a higher up in the uh, government of the most despicable king and queen that I know of. You know their names are synonymous with somebody that's just a mess. Ahab and Jezebel. That's right. He was serving them. Jezebel decided all the prophets of God need to be destroyed. This is coming from the queen. And so they start out. Obadiah finds out. He's up in the, in the government. He finds out and he takes and hides some of the prophets in caves. Now here's what happens. It's, that's civil disobedience. He is going right against his boss and the boss lady. He is absolutely doing that. And here's what it does. He chose to go against the governing authority, and it cost him. Because guess what? He had to pay for their room and board on his own. There is a cost to doing this. I didn't say it wasn't right. I'm just saying there's a cost. Remember? Everything we do has consequences. And so uh, he hides them. You know, the end result is that he gets called on the carpet uh, for that whole thing. But we never hear that he benefited in any way. The end result is you know that the prophet Elijah, Elisha, Elijah is the one. No, now I, get, I always get them good. It's either Elijah or Elisha. Which one is it? Which one? Nobody knows anyway. It doesn't matter. It was one of those guys. They have a showdown with the prophets of Baal and Asheroth, and they're all destroyed. That's the end result of that. But it's because a man took a stand in the beginning. Now we get to the four people that we normally think of when we come to civil disobedience. Let me make it really short. You know them. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The interesting thing is, from the very beginning in the book of Daniel, Daniel says, you know what? 
I am not going to partake of the king's food. If you don't know, the king's food was all offered to idols and then they ate it. He says, I'm not defiling myself with that stuff. Just give us some other food. Just give us regular food. His uh, handler says, no, no way, man. The the king is going to really be mad at me because you guys are going to look like you're starving to death. He said, give us a trial. Give us 10 days. He sought permission. He wasn't trying to be a rebel. He was simply willing to do what is right and even sought permission to do it. He got permission to do it. The end result is they were seen to be wiser and better looking and everything else and smarter than everybody else. Sometimes it really does pay to do what is right. Daniel had given him an interpretation of a statue. So what's Nebuchadnezzar do? He goes and builds a statue of all gold. And it was that everyone had to worship that image. If you didn't, you're in big trouble. They said when you hear the music play... You better worship or you're going to be cast into the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know the story. They got cast into the fire. The people that threw them in, the fire was that hot, it burned them up. And then when Nebuchadnezzar looks in the fire, he doesn't see three, he sees four. You see, when you do what is right, above and beyond government, in the face of it, God is with you. That's the story you get there. And they come out and they get promoted. But I'll tell you what, you think it was scary in between? You better believe it was scary in between. But then we have one last one, and that's Daniel himself. He is seen as head and shoulders above all the rest of them. And the other people didn't like it. Who is this Jewish man who gets away with this? Who does he think he is? And so they went to the king behind Daniel's back and said, make a law. That anybody that worships anybody but you, O king, for 30 days is going to be thrown in the lion's den. You know the story. Again, this is not something you go, oh, lions, nice kitty cats. You don't do that. It's real emotion, real life. It has consequences. In this case, Daniel, he's now high up in the government. He doesn't go looking for trouble, but what he won't do is back down. When he finds out, and he finds out, that the law is going to be signed, he goes to his back porch, and he prays like he did every other day. He wasn't looking for a fight. He wasn't trying to make trouble. He just simply says, I'm going to use my religious rights. You know, I'm I'm going to use freedom of speech and freedom of conscience. And so, you know what happened. He gets thrown in the lion's den. Uh, The lions don't like Daniel. Uh, They they prefer people that have been against Daniel. If you read the rest of the story, you'll find out that they never even, when they got thrown in, they never even touched the floor of the lion's den before they got chewed up. Read the story. Daniel, once again, is, is, is praised. He's lifted up. And the king, and I don't agree with this, the king goes, Anybody, everybody should worship the, the God of Daniel. Ah, they made it a state religion. I don't agree with that part. But you know what? He got the point. Because when we do right, there are consequences. You know Peter and John, New Testament, I already quoted the very last part of that. 
Peter heals a man. They get thrown in jail. They come out and they're told, don't talk about Jesus. They come back out. What do they do? They go right back up talking about Jesus. And that's where the famous statement comes in. When they confronted them one more time, they said, you know what? We ought to obey God rather than man. What do you do with somebody like that? Because you simply exercise the God-given freedoms that we all should have. Lots of governments don't have that, and ours is limiting some of those. The point is, there's one more passage that deals with this. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 15, it says this, And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. This is talking about the Antichrist. So that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. There will be a time in the future where those that exercise their freedom of religion, speech, conscience, freedom to dissent, will be killed. Yeah, believers will be killed because they refuse to worship a false god. Do we have that right? The answer is before God, I don't think we even have the right. I think we have a responsibility at times to stand up and be counted. Now, that's not the norm. Again, if you're going around looking for a fight, you haven't listened to what I'm saying. This is direct contradiction to what is true and what is godly. Indirect, I don't like what, I, if you ask me, I don't like a lot of what our tax dollar goes for. But you know what? I don't get, this, I don't get the right to say I'm not going to pay my taxes. But if it's directly confrontational to what I know to be true and right, they're telling me I can do something that God says I can do, I have to take an exception to that. That, I believe, is the biblical way to look at this. Real quick. We can resist government if it forces us, compels us to do what we believe to be evil. I believe in absolutely use it in nonviolent ways. Burning down other people's business and shooting policemen is absolutely not in this. Civil disobedience, as I already mentioned, is permitted and even necessary when the, our, the laws of the government in direct contradiction to God's laws and commands. We also, I already mentioned it, if you choose to do that, the heavy hand of the government may be on you and you may pay a price in many different ways. In this whole thing, we have what a lot of countries don't have. We have the power to act and replace those who make laws that are contradictory to the truths of the Word of God. We have a right to vote, vote them out of business, campaign against them, campaign for them, whatever it is. We have the right to do that. Please do not be complacent. You know what? It's stewardship of what we have. God has given us some things that most people would only dream of. But if we don't use them, I don't believe we're doing what God wants us to do. Lastly, we need to pray. Remember, I've quoted that the last two sermons. We are to pray that those in government would come to Christ in salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first four verses. And we should pray that they come to the knowledge of the truth. They know what's right and wrong. They come to Christ and they come to know what's right and wrong. That's what we should do. Nobody is exempt from that. 
If you're too young to vote, you can still pray for your leaders. If you're too, you can't get out anymore to do it, you can still pray for our leaders. This morning, we are coming before the Lord in freedom to celebrate what Christ has done for us. If the men would gather, please. We come to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Oh, yes, it's offensive. It's talk about violence. It's talking about bloodshed. It's talking about somebody that went against pretty much everything that was going on in society. But we celebrate the work of Christ. We celebrate that He alone took our sins on Himself. We've been singing about that. And died in our place so that we by faith could trust Him. This supper, this memorial, this remembrance, an object lesson, if you will, looks to something that's an accomplished fact. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, welcome. This is a reminder to you of what Christ has done. If you haven't trusted Christ, it's nothing. If you're a Christian and you know that you have unforgiveness in your heart or you know you need to confess something and you're unwilling to deal with it, please do not participate. We're not going to ask you any questions. Every time we have communion, there are people that don't participate. I don't go up and ask them why they didn't. Sometimes they come and tell me, but not because I ask them. See, your conscience will say, you know what? I'm not living in a worthy manner. Look it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If we eat and drink in an unworthy manner, we eat and drink judgment unto ourselves. And because of that, there are people that are sick and weak, and some people have even died. If you don't believe that, look in Acts chapter 6, when those didn't live in a worthy manner, God took them. The point is, it's a serious thing. And here's one last thing. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim His death. Until he comes again. There's hope in this. There's a future in this. And we invite you. As the men are coming forward. Everyone bow your heads. If you've got something you need to take care of. Please get it taken care of. You may not be able to do the practical thing right now. But when you leave here. If you need to make a phone call. You need to go to someone. Please by all means do that. Meanwhile. We are going to come before this. We're going to examine ourselves. And now I'm going to ask Pastor, uh, Brother Craig, if he would thank the Lord for his body that he gave for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather before you today. Thank you for the sermon. And thank you for the encouragement that we have knowing that whether we be... Uh, in line with what the government's telling us to do or not, we have to follow uh, our faith and our, uh, our devotion to Christ and put you first in all things. And, Father, we thank you for the, uh, the body of Christ that led us and gave us the example. Uh, even though we didn't see him physically, Father, we can follow him from what we saw him do in the Bible. And, Father, I pray that we would emulate him and glorify you in doing so. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. I'm going to ask Brother Brad if he would thank the Lord for his shed blood. Father God, thank you for giving us this command to participate in this by way of remembering what you've done for us, the perfect lamb sacrifice uh, that takes away our sin. Lord, I just remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Christ coming. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Lord, to uh, pay the penalty for our sin and uh, make it uh, so that we can escape your wrath someday. And Lord, we're a great thing. Help us to not leave. Help us to remember these things throughout this week. Lord, uh, we are forgetful people. And just pray, Lord, that this will be just a, a good reminder for us as we go through this week. In Christ's name, amen.
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, This cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Drink from it, all of you. If you would please rise as we close in a word of prayer. Father, it is humbling, encouraging, and challenging all at the same time when we are reminded once again of the great work you've done for us in the past. But Father, the challenge and the encouragement is for today and for tomorrow and for the days ahead. If truly we believe what we've just witnessed, we've just participated in, We will be changed people because we will live a life that's worthy of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Lord, this could never save us, couldn't even make us a better Christian. But when we examine our lives, we recognize there are things we got to throw out, things we got to confess, things we got to forgive. But Lord, we realize the power in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that can be working in our lives every day, every decision, every time our conscience comes into play, that we make a decision of whether what we're going to do is worthy or not worthy of what Christ has done. Lord, help us to live in the light of what you've done for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go with God and be a blessing to someone else. And listen... Guys in particular,